It's good to be back. (laughs) Follow the money is a phrase that is said to have become popular after the 1976 movie All the President's Men. The idea being that if one followed the trail of money, it would become obvious who was responsible for the Watergate break-in. But although the phrase may have caught on after that movie, following the money has been a part of investigations for a long, long time. Because from mob activity to political scandals to the -the run-of-the-mill hitmen for hire, the movement of money tells the real story. But it's not just an issue of forensic accounting. I'm sure that records of my bank account and credit card charges could tell a story, too. During my college days, they would show a well-worn path between the university bookstore and the late-night campus hangout. Looking at the financial records of my time in medical school would divulge the story of someone living close to the edge, buying textbooks at the last possible moment and paying for them with a co-op card, only then to pay the co-op card with a credit card, then to finally pay off the credit card when the financial aid money came mid-October. Records from my time in residency would disclose that I only had a social life every third night. One night spent being on call at the hospital, the following night spent crashing on the couch, and the third night out with my husband and friends, and then the cycle started all over again. The next phase in the money trail of my life would unveil the fact that we had children at home. There would be charges for daycare, for soccer and basketball and band supplies, all those back-to-school charges that happen every August. Over time, our financial records would unearth the presence of job changes and moves from North Carolina to Arkansas to Texas and then back to Arkansas again. Sometimes the story told by my bank account and the story I told myself about who I was matched pretty well. Other times, it didn't match that well at all. But it was usually the bank account that told the truth. How we use our money, our wealth, and our possessions tells a story. It tells what we value and where our heart is. And this is what we see in today's gospel reading. Someone in the crowd yells out to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. It was an attempt to pull Jesus into the midst of conflict, something that we would call triangulation in today's world. Sensing that triangulation is not a good thing, And knowing that Jewish law already spells out the patterns of inheritance, Jesus replies, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? Then, as Jesus often does, he goes on to name the real underlying motivation for the dispute, telling them all, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then we have the parable of the rich fool. It's an entrepreneur's dream. A rich man's land produces so much that he doesn't have enough room to store his crops. And so he says to himself, I know, I'll tear down all my barns and build bigger ones to store all my crops and goods. Then I'll tell my soul, soul, you have enough for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says, you fool, this very night you will die. 
Then all these things you have worked for and stored up, whose will they be? So it is, the Gospel writer tells us, with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. The problem in this parable is not that the man was a successful farmer or landowner or that he had a huge successful harvest. It's that in this whole process he never references anyone other than himself. He thinks to himself, and even in his thoughts he talks to himself. His plans to eat and drink and be merry seem only to include himself, not his friends and family, if he has any, not the nearby village or the people who work for him. Instead, it's all about what he will gain, what his life will look like, about his own security. St. Augustine said that God gave us people to love and things to use, and that sin is when we get these two things mixed up. The rich man in this parable seems to have gotten these two things confused. Instead of loving people and using things, he seems to use people and love things. And in the process, he has become greedy, keeping more than he has room for, more than he could ever use. This is the problem with greed. Greed is never satisfied once it possesses what it wants. Greed is never satisfied once it possesses what it wants. Instead, it turns its sights to the next thing. It just wants more and more. And this is the seductive power of material things. It's a temptation we face as much today as the rich landowner did 2,000 years ago. We, too, can be pulled into thinking we need more and more. Just listen to the underlying conversations of our culture and its media. I think that we repeatedly hear three things that make us think we need more than we already have. First, we hear everywhere that we are not enough. We are never smart enough, attractive enough, thin enough, desirable enough, productive enough. But don't worry, we're told. There are things that can make us better than we are. Now, how do we know in the first place that we are not enough just as we are? By comparing ourselves to others. And this is the second thing, albeit subtle, that we hear over and over again. Our blessings and our gifts are only that comparatively. And I'll explain what I mean by that. What I mean is that we are told that we are blessed when what we have is greater or more than what our neighbor has. And so we end up comparing ourselves to others and trying to get ahead, and when we do we attribute it to God and call ourselves blessed. And finally, this is the third thing that we hear a lot. And I think that it is at root what causes the other two things. We hear all around us that the world is a dangerous place. And so we need more weapons as a society. We need more funds in our retirement accounts. We need a home security system. We need to live in gated communities where people are just like us. We need to hold tight to what we have because there is always someone or something waiting to take it from us. We hear voices all around telling us that we should be very afraid. And we all too often turn to material things to calm those fears. Instead of opening our hands to share with others, we keep our fists clenched to protect what we have. 
In fact, the famous 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote that fear is like a contraction. It causes us to withdraw inside ourselves and away from others. That's why when fear writes the story, the story is always one of individualistic greed. It's the story of the rich landowner who never has enough, who never thinks of anyone but himself. Perhaps we can rationalize all this by saying that it's hardwired into our biology. You know, natural selection, survival of the fittest, all that. Those who look after themselves seem to win in the end, right? That's just the way things work. But that is not the whole story. Evolutionary biologists are using mathematical models, something called game theory, to study how different strategies play out in evolution. They have found that, yes, random mutation and competition between species does exist throughout the evolutionary process. But so does an ever-present tendency for individuals to cooperate with one another. To cooperate not only in terms of working together so that both people benefit, but cooperating in terms also of one individual paying a cost so that the other individual gets a benefit. In human beings, when we choose such a path with good intentions, it's called altruism. Some of the greatest jumps forward in evolution happen through just such cooperation. In other words, cooperation is just as natural as competition. What this tells us is that no matter how red in tooth and claw we may seem to think that the world is, there is and always has been a part of our nature that goes against the tide of individualism, that knows we cannot isolate ourselves from one another and still survive, that knows that we can only move forward together. There is a part of us deep down that understands that it is more life-giving to share what we have with others than to build bigger barns for ourselves. Now, most of us know that this is true, that greed doesn't get us where we want to go, and that a loving generosity is more life-giving. But when our back is pushed against the wall in fear, living with open hands can be a hard thing to do. So how can we make this leap of faith? Well, this, I think, is where religious practices come in. See, faith isn't about just a set of ideas that, that we believe. Faith is also, and even more importantly, about the way that we shape our lives. We learn through routines. Over time, the actions of our bodies become our beliefs. That's why it's important that we participate in the liturgy each week, the lifting up of our hands and our lives at the altar rail, the passing of the peace to one another, the celebration of saints in whose lives we have seen something of the shape of Christ's own life, the tithing of our money, the giving of our time, the work we do in and with our surrounding community, the bringing of food each week for our food pantry. All of these things teach us over time that the individualism and the isolationism of the rich landowner is not really a strategy for life. It is not life-giving. We find true life in the giving of ourselves, in living our lives in communion with God and with one another, and we learn to trust over time that that is true. 
So to that end, I want to invite us to do two things this week. First, to spend a few minutes looking at our bank statements and our credit card statements. And you can take something for anxiety before you do that if you want to. Does the story they match tell the, do, do the story, does the story that they tell match the story that we tell about ourselves? Does the story that those bank statements tell match the same story that we tell ourselves about who we are? Second, to be intentional about the practices in our own lives that keep us reaching out in love instead of contracting in fear. Because after all, doing these things isn't just about following the money. It's about positioning our hearts.